So Palm Sunday, thank you for waving the palms. Isn't that fun to wave it as, as, as uh, Doug said? You feel like a 10-year-old, right? I mean, it just is fun, right? And you get to take these home if you want, and you can make something out of them if you want, or you can remind yourself that this begins the day that our Lord entered Jerusalem and began the fateful journey towards the cross and beyond and offers us life and restoration through that. It is a blessed celebration. Uh, the, the opening hymn obviously kind of helps uh, guide us towards that. Our closing hymn will do the same thing. But it also reminds us that as he stepped into Jerusalem, as he rode that donkey and began that journey, it means that he had to go to the cross. It means that he has to suffer and die. And it means that we can find ourselves at His burial even as we speak today. We're reminding ourselves that throughout these last several weeks, we've been going through the last hours of Jesus' life to help us claim for ourselves the, the specific ways that He restores our lives and our souls and our hearts. And it's interesting because we find ourselves at His burial today. And the burial of Jesus, just like the burial of most people we know, is not often talked about, is it? We just don't really talk about the burial itself. We talk about the deceased. We talk about the concept of death. But we struggle sometimes, I think, talking about the burial, the actual process itself. And as we become more and more of a culture that um, has cremation as a norm, uh, that's becoming more and more the norm. We, we talk even less about burial because there's not as often happening, right? And it reminds me early on in ministry. Uh, you may know Kay and I served uh, Methodist churches in Great Britain for a year, some 30 years ago. It was a great experience. Uh, we got to know lots of good friends with whom we're still in contact, and uh, it establishes great relationships, and we just thoroughly enjoyed it. But in that one-year time span, I conducted 21 funerals. That's a lot for a young guy in particular, only one of which was a full-body burial. Every, all other 20 were cremation because in England and much of Europe, even then and certainly now, cremation is the standard. And it has to do with both space and uh, hygiene and all that kind of stuff, but that was the standard uh, procedure over there. And so I learned how to do funerals where cremation was the norm. And you know, sometimes over here in America, when we go to a cemetery and there's a chapel at the cemetery, we'll have the service there in the cemetery, and then of course we'll either walk or drive to the graveside and, and have the burial there. But uh, in uh, England, at least, that, this is my only experience, it was a very different kind of encounter, and I want to share it with you uh, just briefly. Uh, so you have the chapel that's there on site of the cemetery. It's called the crematorium. It looks something like this. Guys, if you'll pull that up and just leave it up there. That's a little chapel, right? And you can see the pews. You can see the pulpit. You can see where the casket lies, and, and you conduct your service. And, and uh, I remember the very first time I was at the crematorium and conducted the service, I was so pleased with myself, right? I'm a young punk. I'm doing this service for the first time and thinking how wonderful this is and, and how we could honor this individual, how we could celebrate Jesus' life, and how this was a life life well lived. And then I conduct the benediction at the end of the service, and as soon as I say that and before anything else happens, a very strange thing occurs that to me was shocking. As soon as I said the benediction, I heard this kind of motor kick in, and I heard this, and then all of a sudden, that casket is on a conveyor belt, and it goes through those dark doors while we're all standing there. And I am shocked. I'm like, this is as real as it gets. We're going from the sanctuary, the chapel of the Lord, to celebrate Jesus and the new life that He brings, and all of a sudden that casket is going to go right into 
Well, you know where it's going. I mean, you know, it's at the crematorium. But I remember sitting there. Everybody else is completely unfazed. Everybody else has been through this multiple times. They all know it's happening. But I am sweating bullets and thinking to myself, this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. But off goes the casket right to where it needs to go. And every time after that, I remember just having to prepare myself whenever we would go to the crematorium. It's just a different kind of experience, isn't it, friends? Once you've had it, once you know it, once you understand the possibilities, then you just kind of move past it. But burial is a fascinating concept, isn't it? Jesus had to suffer and die. We know this. In order that He might be raised from the dead. But we tend to skip from the cross and coming down and get to the resurrection and we forget about the burial. But the burial becomes so critical to what it means to be restored, to have Jesus restore our lives and to restore our souls. And I think even about our foundational documents, the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited, right, states that Jesus was buried, right, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, right? So we know it's a foundational document. It must take shape. It has to explain why this is important. Likewise, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross as well as His burial, all four of them. But you'll take note of the passion narrative from His going into Jerusalem to His suffering on the cross to His resurrection. The burial is actually a pretty small chunk of change there in terms of the text that it takes up. But then we have Paul, the apostle, who when he writes his glorious uh, understanding of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to encourage you, sometime this week, read 1 Corinthians 15. It is a powerful uh, theological treatise about the resurrection and the bodily resurrection and what it means for us to gain new life through the resurrection. But even there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lays it out. It's in verses 3 and 4, and he just says, Christ died as uh, to fulfill the Scriptures, He was buried, and then He was raised from the dead in order to uh, meet what the Scriptures tell us. So Paul lays it out, the Gospel writers lay it out, the Apostles' Creed lays it out. It's important that we face the burial of Jesus so that we understand how important it is to the greater picture of what it is Christ does for the world and certainly for you and me. So today I want to look at John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, we get a fabulous recounting of the, the burial of Jesus in which we see for two specific individuals, and certainly for you and me and for the world, how it is even Jesus' death and burial brings restoration. Listen for these words from John's Gospel in the 19th chapter, beginning in verse 38. After these things, meaning after He comes down off the cross, right, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where He was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, 
They laid Jesus there. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it, it sounds like just kind of a normal everyday burial, right? In fact, it almost sounds perfunctory because we've read the text often. We've heard the story more than once, and we kind of look at that and think, oh, that was just kind of the normal everyday thing, but it wasn't. Remember, as we talked about last week, crucifixion is a governmental form of capital punishment. It was not a religious form. And so it was really quite uncommon that someone had the opportunity to ask permission to take the body and then certainly to take the body and lay it to rest in a very spiritual, religious, God-honoring way. This was not normal. This would not have been common. So we take note right off the bat that this is a very unusual set of circumstances and very special for both Joseph and for Nicodemus, and certainly ultimately for you and me. But let's look at Joseph and and Nicodemus because they're two very unique characters. Um, Joseph is mentioned in all four Gospels, but we know very little about him. What we do know, we put together in pieces from each of the four Gospels. What we know here is that he's from Arimathea, a region not too far away. What we know from Matthew's gospel is that he's a wealthy man. It tells us that in Matthew's gospel. And it also tells us in Matthew's gospel that this new tomb that John speaks of is actually his tomb. That is to say, his family tomb, because this would have been common in the Jewish tradition that you had a family tomb, and you probably would use it over and over again over the years, through the generations. So Joseph is wealthy, we know, evidently, and he has his own tomb. What we also know from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel is that Joseph is a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are the kind of um, supreme court of the Jewish uh, nation. They make uh, decisions. They make rulings. They kind of control uh, the decision-making factors within the community. They're very important people. They're elected to it, appointed to it. And so Joseph is both well-off financially, and he's clearly a mover and a shaker in the community because he's on the Sanhedrin. But what we also know is what John tells us. He's a secret follower of Jesus. Remember? And so here's this guy that's in Jewish leadership who kind of sets the course and kind of helps uh, make the pace come out, and yet he secretly behind the, uh, the, behind the door and under the covers is a follower of Jesus. And what we begin to discover is that while he's been keeping that secret, now the cat's out of the bag because he meant and did a very public thing. He went in the presence not only of Pilate, but whoever is in the court with Pilate, whoever is around Pilate, whether servants or other dignitaries, he's asking in a very public way, can I have this body? And without saying it, what he is communicating is, I know this guy, I cherish this man, and I want to honor who he is. Now, Scripture doesn't say any of that, but why else would he, a member of the Sanhedrin, want this body and want to go and bury it because he's actually a follower, as the text tells us. And in the moment, Joseph of Arimathea is making a very public statement because here's the other thing. Uh, My hunch is no one in this room has this experience, but if you do, keep it to yourself. Have you ever carried a dead body anywhere that somebody couldn't just kind of take note? Right? I mean, can you imagine? He takes the body and he moves from Herod's place to whatever and wherever this new tomb is, right? And so he's got a body. I don't know how he's carrying it. I don't know how he's transporting it. I don't know how he's getting it there. But my hunch is it can't be too secretive. (laughs) And so you see, Joseph is having a restoration of his own soul. 
He's moving from a very secretive follower, nobody knows, he's never claimed it publicly, to now he's owning the fact that he's a follower of Jesus and he wants to honor Christ and he wants to um, put his body to rest in an honorable spiritual way. It is a process of restoration that claims Joseph for the ages. Now look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a fascinating character because we don't know anything about him, and yet we feel as though we know a lot about him. Nicodemus is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. He's not mentioned in any other uh, letter, no other gospel. He's only talked about in this one gospel, and he's mentioned three different times in three very unique kinds of ways. You know Nicodemus from John chapter 3, the story that he comes to Jesus and asks about how can a baby be born again and so forth and so on, and the famous Scripture passage, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? But it's at the very beginning of John chapter 3 that we realize who Nicodemus is and the very character of his nature. The very first verse says quite literally, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus by night. Why? because he's embarrassed. He doesn't want anybody else to know he's in the presence of this guy named Jesus. He doesn't want anybody else to capture the fact that he wants to somehow get to know this guy, that he wants some further information, that he wants to know about whatever it is this man has. He seems to know that Jesus has something for him. He seems to know that there's something about the powers and the presence of this guy named Jesus, and therefore he enters into this dialogue about how can this happen? You talk about being born from above. You talk about being born again. I don't understand how that works, and Jesus helps him to understand that he comes under cloak of night and he departs under cloak of night because he's embarrassed. We don't hear again about Nicodemus until John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, uh, some of the Sanhedrin, some of the Pharisees, some of the Jewish leaders are all over Jesus about His teachings and teaching on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath, and He's doing it all wrong, and He's blaspheming, and they want to put Him to death, and they want to crucify Him, and they want to do something to Him. And Nicodemus shows up in a very public way, and he begins to make a profession, if you will, or an acknowledgement right in the middle of everybody. John chapter 7, verse 50 says, then Nicodemus, the leader who met with Jesus earlier, spoke up and he said, is it legal? that we're able to condemn somebody without putting them on trial first? And you see, there's a bit of a restoration going on. You see, he's moved from cloak and darkness and embarrassment to, um, I'm not going to fully name it here, but what I do want to say is, golly, this can't be legal, y'all. Surely we need to offer this man due process. Surely we need to acknowledge something about how we do business in a legal character, uh, 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 integrous way, right? So he's made no real public profession, but he is sort of beginning to out himself about the fact that he likes this man and he believes in him. And then finally, we don't hear about Nicodemus again until here in chapter 19. And he just sort of shows up, right? And he shows up again in a very sort of mysterious way, but he shows up for a very clear and specific purpose in a God-honoring way. He wants to dispose of his Lord and Savior's body. He wants to make it clear to everybody who's gathered what he's doing. And it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, uh, just think with me for a minute the logistics of what Nicodemus is doing. I mean, he shows up, and John uh, has done his speech and and asked for uh, Jesus' body, and then Nicodemus shows up with, oh, by the way, a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe. You ever carried 100 pounds? 
It, it doesn't happen very conspicuously, does it? I mean, I don't know about you, but these last couple of weekends, I've been tossing mulch, right? And those come in 80-pound bags. Can you imagine just slumping over the 80-pound bag? He's got 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe because he wants to treat his Lord's body in a God-honoring way. And he can't do that very secretively. And so Nicodemus has moved from embarrassment to kind of half acceptance and acknowledgement to I want everybody and every, anybody to know this is my Lord, and I need to honor Him, and I need to provide for His body, and I need for you to see how all of that's going to take shape. And a part of what we begin to see in Joseph and in Nicodemus is a process of restoration, a process by which God is moving and working in their hearts over time. They both start off as secretive or sort of unknown followers. And over time and by their own work and understanding, and even as it might happen for you and me, by the um, silence of the night, they recognize that Jesus is their Savior, and they want to commit fully to Him by honoring Him and putting Him to rest. And I think to myself, Man, there's probably a bunch of us who somehow don't think that we can find restoration or somehow don't believe it can be possible for me because my life is a shambles or I've been trying for a long time or I've been wondering who this guy is and I'm not 100% sure how all this works and I don't know what to do about this and I want this restoration. I need this restoration. I understand that it can change my life, but I just don't know. And so I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but I guarantee you there's at least a handful of us here that need to hear this. Jesus wants to restore your soul. Jesus is looking for an opportunity to restore your soul. And Jesus has the, op- has the provision to restore your soul. And so I just need you to hear me, really hear Jesus. He, he's working for you. And He wants to help you. And you may feel as though the bottom has dropped out of your life. You may feel as though there's no way possible. You may feel as though there's no way this could ever work. But I need to assure you that the life, the suffering, the death, and the burial, and yes, thank God, even for the resurrection, Jesus wants to restore your soul. There is not darkness. There is light. There is not um, bleakness. There is hope. And I just need you to know Jesus wants that for you, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter where you find yourself right now, no matter what's happening to you right now, there can be restoration. It may take time. It may be a process. It may happen over a span of years. But just like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, it's possible. And I praise God for it, and I celebrate it for you and for whoever you may know that needs it. Friends, Jesus died on that cross, was buried, and was raised in order that we might experience that. And that comes from His love, His desire to share God's grace and offer to anybody who might desire it. You know, in our Methodist tradition, we have some founders. One is named John Wesley, and one is named Charles, his brother. 
And John and Charles Wesley were phenomenal theologians, and, and Charles, his brother, wrote, um, golly, over 6,000 hymns. And, and truth be known, don't tell John I said this, but Charles was a better theologian than John. And it became true and manifest through all of his singing and through all of his songs. And Charles would do it this way. It was kind of fascinating. Charles knew that the barroom tunes were what everybody knew. And so Charles would do this fascinating thing. He would take a common tune that everybody had sung in the bar rooms, and he would write theological treatises to it and put it to that music so that you could sing it because you recognized the music. Well, now that was about 300 years ago. It, the music's not the same, right? But music still speaks to our souls, and music still speaks of God's love. And there's a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote in 1739 called simply, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? By the way, you're going to sing a Charles Wesley hymn next Sunday called Christ the Lord is Risen Today. You ever heard that song? Charles wrote that song because he knew of the power of the resurrection and the richness of God's love. And so does this hymn. And it's got a bit of a refrain that I'm going to make a horrible attempt to sing to you today. And, and so I hope that it doesn't um, numb your ears, but hopefully you will hear the words. Sherry, will you help me out? Amazing love, how, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, this is an amazing song, the richness of those words, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? That refrain is sung every verse, and it speaks of the powerful good news that Jesus gives us life and restores our soul. Friends, may it be so for you. May you know this day and the next that Jesus is waiting to restore your soul. He yearns to make it fresh and new for you, and that all of us, like Nicodemus and Joseph, might one day discover this great joy. God loves you and wants this very gift for you. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, for the power of His resurrection, the good news that even though He did suffer and die, and even though He was buried under the ground, that He brings new life, that He restores who we are and what we can be, and that He brings the only kind of life that we really desire, eternal, everlasting, abundant. Thank You, God, for that most precious of gifts, that this is our prayer, Lord, and we lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen. Hey, friends, I'm grateful not only for that restoration that Jesus brings, but the restoration that you make possible through your generosity. Every single week, friends, you are more generous than ever before, and you make that ministry and that transformation real. Thank you. If you brought a gift with you this morning, there are some brown boxes right outside the doors at the white columns. Or if you'd like to make a gift right now in your pew or maybe later this week, you can scan the QR code here on the screen or text the letters T-M-U-M-C to the number 45777. Thank you for all that you do to make ministry possible.